Good morning, church. This is Matt Doherty actually doing a bit of time traveling this morning where I'm checking in from the middle of the week at high school camp at Ponderosa Lodge in Mount Hermon. It's been a great week with about 20 of our students here. Camp always brings its highs and lows, but we're excited to be partway through the week. And tonight is actually the night where around 150 students are going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so we are praying that tonight is a good night for everyone. And we can't wait to see what the rest of the week at camp holds. Uh, and today we've been asked to share just a bit of someone in our life who exemplifies the fruit of goodness. And one of the ways I like to define goodness has to do with purity of heart and how we see that in people. And when I thought of this, I immediately thought of my older sister. Her name's Lindsay and our family has kind of developed this impromptu tradition of whenever it's someone's birthday or we're celebrating them and sitting around the table together, we all go around and we share a compliment, something we love and appreciate about them. And what was so pure about Lindsay's heart is, it's kind of comical, but with every single compliment that we threw her way, she returned that same compliment to us just out of the goodness of her own heart when we said, oh, Lindsay, you're such a good mother. She would turn to my mom and say, and you're such a good mother. And it just comes from this place of pure goodness within her, which truly reflects the Holy Spirit that shines bright in her life. And so she definitely was someone I thought about as we're talking about people who exemplify goodness. And so Today, I'm going to be reading our scripture for us as well. And so I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and verses 22 through 26, followed by Luke 12, uh, verses 16 through 21. So it reads as such, Galatians 5, 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And this is Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Matt from Mount Hermon and Matt sitting here. <laughs> um, Good morning, everyone. I'm Bart Garrett, one of the pastors here, and um, we are engaging this question this summer, what does a Christian 
look like? And if you find yourself maybe on the outside of faith looking in, maybe you're joining us online, maybe you've come with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, it would be easy to answer that question uh, any number of ways. Um, you may believe uh, that these people believe in God, which makes them a little bit anti-science perhaps, or maybe uh, you think about them as, as single-issue voters, or maybe you think that Christians believe in a NIMBY, not in my backyard sort of way, that someone somewhere is having too good of a time. Well, we're really hoping that you this summer would explore with us the fruit of the Spirit and better understand that what a Christian is supposed to look like is a person who is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness, as we'll talk about today, and self-control. And we've also asked the question this summer, how does someone become a Christian? And you remember, uh, if you were here last week, Brian talked about this paradox, which is so true with respect to the fruit of the Spirit. And you see this paradox in verses 24 and 25 that Matt read to us this morning. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the sinful nature, those things that have have turned away from God, uh, with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, Let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, God has called us into this new life in Christ. We were dead in sin, and God made us alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the paradox is we keep in step with the Spirit. We keep walking in the Spirit. So we are resting in God, and we are striving. We are passive, and we are active. And the way that I was uh, thinking about this, and some of you will remember uh, years ago, there was that commercial where two guys go out onto the screen, and one of them says, well, I'm a Mac, and the other one says, well, I'm a PC. So think about this in terms of an operating system for just a second. Fewer of you will remember before that commercial, there were these places called gateway countries. Do you remember those places where you could go and buy computers, and the boxes had this pattern of, of cowhide, the mouse pads were cowhide, and you walk in, and The sales rep had this little name tag that said, Moo, my name is. It was a very cheesy experience, can I just say. So I remember the first day after buying a Gateway Country computer that I went into a Mac store. Very different experience. I felt hip just being in there. You know, it's like urban minimalism, blue and uh, some black and white and gray, just very elegant and simple and I I make my way over to the genius bar and I say to the sales rep you know I'm thinking about getting a Mac and all of a sudden like three sales reps and six customers sort of descend on me and they start telling me their confession stories I I once lost everything when I was on a PC I, I, I gave a virus to a thousand friends and now I don't have any friends And then then these stories turned to stories of conversion. They said things like, "Uh, I've never felt so safe and secure. They say things like, I haven't had a virus in seven years. You know, the the customer uh, sales rep says to me, you know, what is it going to take for me to get that computer on your desk by this afternoon? 
a new operating system is what I needed. Now, if you're a PC person, you can flip the illustration. But the point I'm making is uh, we need a new operating system, but that operating system is functional. It doesn't just sit on our desk, but we actually make use of it. It's the good work of God in our life, giving us this new operating system, and then the good work that we're called to in making use of that operating system. And so today, we're looking at that through the lens of, as Matt said, goodness. And let me confess, as I was thinking about this message this week and I got to goodness, I thought, gosh, you know, this feels a little boring to me. Goodness. I don't really know that that I want to spend my time thinking about goodness. And then I remember the juxtaposition of being around good people and bad people especially in moments of need. Maybe your car breaks down and you're stranded, or maybe you're lost. And it's at that moment you want the person coming in behind you over the hill to be a good person, to stop and offer help. And Christians believe, actually, that this goodness is attached to the goodness of God. Devana read a psalm about this earlier. I'll read a couple more. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for God is good. Psalm 119, God, you are good, and what you do is good. A couple months ago, some of you, if you were here, will remember we talked about these prayers of the church through the book of Acts, and there's this great passage in Acts chapter 10 where Peter, who's Jewish, is reconciling this reality that Cornelius, who's not Jewish, is coming in to Christian faith. And Peter has this exclamation that's so beautiful. He says, Oh yes, we are followers of Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good. I love that. So here's the big idea this morning. A couple movements, three questions I'll ask. Uh, What is goodness all about? Question one. Secondly, what are the enemies of goodness? What, What gets in the way of our goodness? And then thirdly, what are the outcomes of goodness? What does the fruit of goodness look like? So firstly, what is goodness all about? And you've heard the expressions, uh, Matt mentioned one of them earlier, out of the goodness of her heart. You know, she's a, a good person. Uh, a good man is hard to find. He's a good egg. If you have kids who play sports, you take them out to the sports field, what do you say? Be a good sport. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in preparation for this series this summer, I read a book by Jerry Bridges entitled The Fruitful Life. And if you're keeping score at home, you'll know that there are nine aspects of the Spirit, nine fruits of the Spirit, yet Jerry Bridges has eight chapters in that book. Why? Well, he connects kindness, where Brian was last week, and goodness is one chapter. And then he makes a distinction, and I love this distinction. He says, kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others. Goodness is the activity calculated to advance that happiness. Kindness is the inner disposition created by the Holy Spirit that causes us to be sensitive to the needs of others, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. Goodness is kindness in action, both in words and deeds. In other words, Kindness would be a smile at a store clerk or or saying thank you to a waitress or offering an encouraging word to an elderly person or a word of recognition or engagement with a small child. 
It doesn't cost time or money necessarily, but it conveys this sincere desire for their well-being. But goodness then involves this deliberate action to take that desire of kindness many steps further. So, so I would define goodness for our purposes this way. Here's the definition. Goodness is genuinely acting on behalf of the best interests of others. Goodness is genuinely acting on behalf of the best interests of others. So what gets in the way? What are some enemies of goodness? I'm sure if we made a list, there'd be 10 or 11 or 12 of them. I want to focus on two this morning. Uh, Greatness and futility. What are some enemies of goodness? Well, one would be a quest for greatness, and a second one would be succumbing to futility. Here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus tells this chilling story, this parable, Luke 12, where he describes a certain rich man No names in these stock characters in his parables. It's just another rich dude and his quest for greatness. And that quest, if you caught it, is rooted in what? Self-absorption. Because in these little four verses, in this little bitty story, in four verses we have ten self-references. I, I, I. Me, me, me. Mine, mine, mine. In verse 17, this certain rich dude thinks to himself, And then in verse 18, he says to himself. And then in verse 19, he says, then I will say to myself. So he's already planning future conversations with himself. And Jesus uh, breaks this soliloquy in verse 20. God graciously interrupts and gives him someone to talk to. So self-interest has got in the way of genuinely, the definition of, of goodness, genuinely acting on behalf of the best interest of others. This man is self-absorbed, so he is blind to the self-interest or to the best interests of others around him. So what does he do in that? He builds bigger barns because size matters, and he rationalizes this as as good agribusiness. He's going to create surplus, perhaps. He's going to control the market. Yet, what about his neighbors and the tenants and the the day laborers who are working hand-to-mouth? See, Jesus says a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And this bad tree of this certain rich dude is stuck in a soil system of ownership, not stewardship. In other words, this certain rich dude is saying, everything in my life that's good, I've earned it. I worked for it. I worked hard. And and, and maybe we do. Many of us have worked very, very hard. But the paradigm isn't shifted. He doesn't, as a steward, say, no, no, no. Everything I have in my life is actually a good gift from God. Not to be owned, but to be stewarded, to be shared, to be used. Look at the credit he takes for himself. In verse 16, uh, Jesus says in the story that the ground yields an abundance of harvest. And then in verse 17, he asks the question, so what do I do with my crops? You catch it? It's not what I have been given. It's what I've worked hard for. And God says of this self-absorbed, self-interested, non-good sort of a life, you fool. This night, your very life will be demanded of you, which is another way of saying, you're going to run out of time before you run out of money. 
Now, is this a caricature? Uh, perhaps, although maybe some of these people are in this room. Maybe some of these people are in our community. But to, to just dial it in a little bit more, uh, we have a lot of young parents in our church. We have grandparents in our church. So think about this quest for greatness in parenting. A question worth asking is this one. Are you parenting your kids toward greatness or toward goodness? Toward a desire to achieve greatness or to exhibit goodness? Maybe your narrative works this way. I want to be sure they get into a great school so they can get a great job, so they can have a great salary, so they can have a great family, so they can take great vacations? Or are you hoping through your parenting that they'll become children of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control? See, that's not as focused on the circumstances as it is their character. And I would suggest that it's deeply connected to gratitude, to being able to say thank you. You know, if you ask my kids, um, what makes dad the most frustrated? And they may say lying because, you know, we talk about how it can tarnish a reputation that takes years to build. But I'd imagine they'd end up saying, probably when we're not grateful. Let me offer a word to teenagers in the room. I, I've really gotten into uh, reading commencement addresses. I'm not sure what that makes me other than a little bit weird, I suppose. But every May and June, I find myself like finding nine or 10 or 11 different commencement addresses and reading them. And I've noticed over the years, if you're reading from like the 1920s and 30s and 40s, say versus the, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and to present day, and this is a, a little bit of a generalization, but that first set tends to really be focusing on the type of person that these graduates are becoming versus the second set, the present set, which is usually about all the things that you can accomplish. Do what you want to do. Be what you want to be. The world is your oyster. The sky is the limit. Dare to be great. See how that's shaping circumstances rather than daring to be good, which is about building character. Jesus, the one who went about doing good. So this quest for greatness can be an enemy to a life of goodness. And then secondly, I mentioned futility can also be an enemy to a life of goodness because some of you actually have gotten off the treadmill and you're not on the quest for greatness and you're really seeking in your life to do real good. And you look around, it's like, does this really matter? Does, does my goodness make a difference? Well, Paul, in the very next chapter of Galatians, as he's addressing this young church in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he says this, catch it, let us not grow weary in doing good. Instead, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And when Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good, what this tells me is that growing weary in doing good is a temptation. This tells me that doing good takes time and energy and patience and practice, and it can be exhausting. And this tells me that you might go through seasons of futility in your doing good that could even turn into apathy. And it also tells me that in your doing good, there can be a real cost to your goodness. 
Because so often, corrupt people take advantage of that goodness. As I was thinking about this sermon, I couldn't help but think about the life of Daniel. And some of you would know it from the Old Testament. And it was said of Daniel, he had exceptional qualities or he, led a, he had a spirit of excellence. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, it says, Daniel's enemies could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. In other words, Daniel was good at what he did. He wasn't negligent. And what he did was good. He wasn't corrupt. This would be akin to us saying, no, not only is she a good teacher, but she's a good person. And truly good people, sometimes there is a cost to that goodness, isn't there? Corrupt people don't like good people doing good. Daniel's boss trusted him. Daniel's employees trusted him. But the corrupt folk, Daniel was an obstacle to their greedy ambition. They wanted him out. So they set this rule, you know, that you, you know how the story goes. He could only pray to the king for a month. And what happens? Daniel, as a good person, resists the temptation. He doesn't take the easy way out. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't find the loopholes. And the corrupt people resent him more and more and more. And back to Galatians 6, do not grow weary in your doing of good. Don't let futility, succumbing to apathy, be an enemy of your goodness. Which leads me to our last question then. What are the outcomes of goodness? What does the fruit of goodness in a life really look like? And again, if we were making a list, maybe we would have 10 or 11 or 12 things we put on the list, but for time's sake, I'll put two things on the list. One of the outcomes of a good life, I think, is finding purpose and satisfaction in that life. You know, Paul wrote to uh, another church in Ephesus, and in the second chapter of that letter, he says this, and, and I love it, and I'm just undone by it when I stop and think about it. We are God's masterpiece, quite literally God's good work, and we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let that sink in for just a second. Your vocation, your calling, which is your career and your church and your family and your friendships. In those spheres, there is goodness that God has prepared for you in advance to do. It's like walking into an art class and there's an easel and there's uh, paint and there's brushes and there's a canvas. And God is essentially saying, there are people populating your life. They are on a mission from me for you to do good in their life. It's amazing the purpose and the meaning and the satisfaction that could come out of seeking goodness in that way. And then the second, the second thing that uh, this life of goodness might provide, a second outcome, is it just really and truly might change a life. I, I close with this story of Derek Black. Uh, it showed up years ago in the Washington Post under the title, The White Flight of Derek Black. And Derek grew up a white nationalist. His father, Don Black, created Stormfront, which is this uh, internet's first and largest white nationalist site. 
over 300,000 users. His mother's first marriage, which was to David Duke, who's one of the country's most infamous racial zealots. And Derek was called the heir. He spoke at national rallies. He did a morning radio show. And then he ended up in college, and he tries to blend in. But in April of 2011, about 10 years ago, he notices a message posted to the student board at 1.56 a.m., And it was written by someone Derek didn't know, an upperclassman who had been researching terrorist groups online when he stumbled across the familiar face. So he posted, have you seen this man? And beneath those words was a picture that was unmistakable. It was Derek Black himself. And the caption read, Derek Black, white supremacist and a college student here. How do we as a community respond? And by that time in the morning, there are already over a thousand messages reading things like, well, I just want this guy to die a painful death along with his entire family. Is that too much to ask? Well, five months passed, and then a friend, Matthew, from Derek's first semester, before he was outed, he sent him a message, a text. He says, what are you doing Friday night? And Matthew was the only Orthodox Jew at the school, and he had started hosting a weekly Shabbat on Friday nights, and he invited Derek. And Matthew had spent a few weeks debating whether or not this was a good idea. He and Derek had lived near each other in the dorm, but they hadn't spoken since Derek was was outed on the forum. And Matthew, who almost always wore a yarmulke, had experienced enough anti-Semitism in his life to be familiar with the KKK, with David Duke, with Stormfront. He went back and he read some of Derek's posts on the site, Jews are not white. Jews worm their way into power over our society. Jews must go. And Matthew decided his best chance to affect David's thinking was not to challenge him or to cancel him, but to include him. Maybe he'd never spent time with a Jewish person before, Matthew remembered thinking. It was the only social invitation that Derek had received since returning to campus, so he agreed to go. Derek arrived that first Shabbat. Nobody mentioned white nationalism or the forum out of respect for Matthew. Derek was quiet and polite. He came back the next week and then the next week until after a few months, Nobody felt at all threatened, and the Shabbat dinner grew back to its original size. It had shrunk for the season when Derek had begun coming. And when asked about the change in Derek, Derek's dad said, this is a classic case of Stockholm Syndrome. Derek has become a hostage to liberal academia, and he now experiences empathy for his captors. And Derek said, for the first time in my life, I was free. See, this Orthodox Jewish college student didn't challenge or cancel Derek. He included him. The good work of inviting him over to dinner over and over and over again. And it changed Derek's life forever. If you follow him today, he's written a book. He's often interviewed. He's become a real hero in helping people confront their own racism. So as we come to this table, let me just ask the question again. How is your life marked by this sort of goodness? If you are a Christian, then as Peter said, 
You're a follower of Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good. So what might be getting in the way? A quest for greatness, succumbing to futility. And how might you firmly believe that the goodness you are seeking to live out of will bring about meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your own life and just might also change the life of another? Would you pray with me as we come to this table? We're using, as we do week to week, the prayer of John Stott. And um, I'd ask you if you're courageous enough to just read it aloud with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.